Hello, gardeners. I'm Louisa Pringle Cameron, podcasting to you on the Charleston Gardener this first week of September 2021. I've been recuperating from an unexpected full hip replacement, which resulted in taking a break from gardening and talking about gardening for the month of August and a bit of September. I am so grateful to be able to kneel and bend again with my new hip. I missed gardening. It remains oppressively hot and humid here in the low country, but a light wind yesterday suggested that fall is not too far away and catalogs are beginning to appear online and in the mailbox. So what is going on in the garden? I've been studying my friend P.J. Garten's books, Some Like It Hot, on plants and flowers, and also taking note of what plants have managed to thrive and continue to bloom during the high heat of August, July, of course, and the beginning of September. As always, the crepe myrtles outperform anything else that blooms in summer. Many of our historic streets are lined in these trees which produce a spectrum of pink, lavender, red, and white heavy panicles of blossoms, which may not be fragrant, but are showy all summer due to the many different cultivars. The indica crepe myrtles can grow upwards of 40 feet tall, but there are also dwarf varieties. Judicious pruning of the berries can sometimes result in a second flush of bloom. These are messy trees, dropping petals, berries, and leaves most of the year until they finally go dormant around January. The Natchez, Muscogee, and Catawba myrtles we have defining the perimeter of our city garden all begin to put out new leaves in late April and early May and bloom from late June or early July until September. Depending upon the weather, their leaves can turn burgundy, red, and yellow, and orange in the late fall. I have photographs of splendid crepe myrtles on nearby properties that are deep red as late as New Year's Day. Crepe myrtles make excellent specimen trees. Just be sure to choose the color and the height that best complements your property. I've almost stopped planting a late summer garden because it's so much trouble to nurse plants along in July and August, and these are the months when I lose the most, either from neglect or from the brutal weather. I took heart, however, when I saw an extensive city planting on Murray Boulevard just recently. Thriving, without any apparent watering system, was a bed at least 40 feet long full of annuals and perennials in nearly full summer sun. It was packed with a candy-colored range of annuals and perennials, including Evolvulus glomeratus blue days, also known as dwarf morning glory, Delicate gora with its dancing petals on long stems, clear yellow melon podium, masses of bicolor dwarf zinnias, the twisted coxcombs of Celosia cristata, pentas, rudbeckias, vinca, angelonia, gomfrina, dwarf salvias, Celosia spicata waving furry tails in the light wind, and caladiums that were surprisingly perky. I noticed iris and lilies for the fall, a few hardy ferns, and some delicate plants woven in among the rest that had only a few petals remaining that I was unable to identify. Gilliardia, sages, 
rosemary, and lychnis coronaria, also known as rose campion, would be happy additions. Wedelia trilobata, a robust ground cover with yellow daisy-like flowers, could be a bit too difficult to control, as would most ruellias or Mexican petunias. I think the pale pink and lavender dwarf varieties of ruellia work well, and I've seen them performing nicely in sidewalk bed plantings along the street. The city bed near the battery was well kept and in perfect scale and I will continue to record it with photos from time to time as it is well worth duplicating. I'm already browsing seed catalogs and making notes for next year for a similar transitional summer to fall flower bed below our porch that remains almost empty right now because of its harsh western exposure. And the, that bed on the battery is a great example for planting summer. I will be planting some fall vegetables there soon too and moving the heather that survived summer closer to the front of the border. The local nurseries are gearing up for the annual rush on shrubs and trees, and everyone is looking forward to cooler weather and more activity in the garden. I'm also weeding like crazy right now because I've been away from the garden for about six weeks, and the small weeds have really taken over. And it's best for me not to use Roundup but to go out there and just hand pull. The plant of the week is the toughest nails workhorse, Lantana. This woody perennial is a shrub that can grow over six feet tall and 10 feet wide in the right sunny location. It blooms from spring to frost in our area and comes in a wide range of single as well as mixed colors from white to orange to purple to brilliant yellow to a deep rosy pink. It shears nicely, and I have seen it treated as topiary in large terracotta pots at the Peca House Museum Garden in Annapolis, Maryland. It is usually disease and pest resistant, but can be plagued by white flies and fungus. In Florida, the non-native lantanas are considered invasive, and all parts of the plant and its berries are toxic to animals. The University of Florida has been developing sterile varieties of the non-native lantana camera, which will not be considered invasive. The native varieties L. involucrata and L. depressa are somewhat rare and to be encouraged. All of the lantanas are floriferous and good pollinators in spite of the fact that they're toxic to animals. Thanks to Daniel Patrick, my producer, whose own podcast, Mandolins and Beer, was a most pleasant, informative, and interesting diversion while I was resting my new hip. And remember, Benjamin Disraeli reminded us how fair is a garden amid the trials and passions of existence. I hope that you will all join me next week for another episode of The Charleston Gardener. And please visit my ongoing website, gocharlestongardener.com. Thank you again.